In today's episode, I'll be talking with the fantastic Omar Chowdhury from the 21st Club. This is one of four podcasts talking about the future of the football industry. So Omar, here we are. Um, we are talking football, which is obviously what we do for a living, which is great. Um, both of us have been involved um, at different levels, working with clubs, players, agents, etc. And one of the things that we're going to start talking about is that the summer window just gone. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think it was great to be involved in quite a lot of great and fantastic deals uh, more generally. But in terms of trends, that's not something that I see more and something you have great visibility on. If you want to maybe set out some of the interesting trends that you've seen over the summer and then we can take it from there. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of the clubs task us to look at the big macro picture for them because it's not easy when you're in the weeds of a, of a transfer window. I think the number one thing for me that I've noticed quite a lot is this kind of race to find younger, better players. Uh, the age at which players are getting signed for top clubs now for the fees that we're talking about is is insane. So Charles Felix is probably the kind of biggest example over the summer. But if you take the last three years and compare that to the previous three years, the the growth rate of transfer fees in young players is much, much bigger than the transfer fees in, in older players. So for under 21s, it's a growth rate that's about 25% bigger than the growth rate for 21 to 24-year-olds. So usually, you know, clubs would sign the 21 to 24-year-olds and you know, after they've proved themselves a little bit, maybe in a weaker league. But now they're just hunting them kind of as, as teenagers or as, as 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds. And that's that's really a big, big, big trend of, of notice. And is that because you think, I'm just thinking out loud now really, because ultimately the slightly more expensive younger players in that bracket are p- possibly... Um, are too expensive for those mid-range clubs that once those players are somewhat established, they're out of those that price range, and then actually you need the particular clubs in a variety of different leagues have to find even younger players and spend more money. I.e., the risk is higher, but they're willing to take that risk because of the upside. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah, it's a knock-on effect isn't it? down through through the leagues. At the moment that clubs are selling their their 22, 23 year olds, they're looking younger to reinvest it, so it kind of filters way down through the market. Um, the interesting thing I think as well is that clubs are realising that there is no such thing as resale value. Like when Atletico Madrid are signing Joao Felix, they're signing him at the value that he is anticipated to be in the future, not the value he is now. He's clearly not 130-odd million euro player. He has potential to be that. And so if there is certainty or a high degree of certainty on them achieving that, then you know, you're going to, pay, going to pay that price now. Um, and so, yeah, that's why you're seeing this kind of rush because... Not everyone's going, oh, we'll sign up for 5 million and sell it for 10 million because the selling clubs are going, well, we'll just sell it for 10 million now rather than, rather than 5 million. And one of the things that at least I'm seeing, um, and we could talk about some of the trends as well, is that growing reliance on uh, sell on clauses as well. Mm-hmm. And um, if it's release clauses or uh, buyout clauses, etc., is that I think a lot of the, the smaller clubs, if they're not able to possibly negotiate on particular fee levels yeah. is that one of the things they're being very very strong on um, is um, sell-on clauses and you know obviously with the different types of transfer fee escalation um, and um, inflation over the last few years in different ways for those types of players even yeah. the, the need or the requirement to get those sell-on clauses in because of the high value that then can be attached to players in the future is obviously really important is that, is that something you'd encourage the smaller clubs to be doing it is to get those sell-on clauses in because I guess the, the choice for them is try and negotiate for a bigger fee now and not accept it or 
go for the selling course and accept the discount. There are so many variables. It's almost like one part of the, the, the of, of maybe six or seven levers yeah. because the truth is sometimes is that a buying club may say, okay, here's 10 million pounds. And um, the buying club may also say, but you're only going to get 2.5 million a year over the next five years yeah, or four yeah. years, for example. So it's sometimes a matter of cash flow as much <laughs> as anything else. Um, and then one of those levers, obviously, though, is that sell-on um, clause, which you know can, can happen in lots of different ways as well. It can be, you know, a club maybe a selling club may be so insistent on wanting one of those selling clauses that they'll actually be happy to reduce the transfer fee that they may actually get as a result. Yeah. But usually, it's those commercials are evolved over a short space of time, and then it goes from there. And then sometimes, even we've seen with in the past, it's been publicised. Daniel Levy, when Southampton were in trouble, mm-hmm. he actually tried to negotiate to get that sell-on clause for bail removed because he knew in time that bail would be sold, um, and then. Tottenham were happy to pay Southampton a smaller number because he realised that you know Real Madrid were coming calling sooner rather than later. Yeah, it's a whole financial industry in of itself, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's an interesting place where clubs are. You've almost got like a chain reaction of, of sell-on clauses. So you might have a club that can't negotiate a deal will sell on to it mm. and take that sell-on club for the next club who will then take a sell-on clause and so yeah. on. And I, I think it's almost indicative of some of the inequality that's come in the game in that there are more and more teams now that are more detached from the elite level in the game so a league one club might sell to a championship club he might sell to a bottom half Premier League club and, and, and so on uh, and so does, does that increase complexity like how do clubs even keep track of all, all those kind of clauses that are going on well it's all to do with the contractual nexus between the different clubs in the transfer agreement but yeah there can be sell-ons or sell-ons potentially as well and, and the other interesting element which has just you know really raised its head again in the summer is uh, the idea of players re-owning their economic rights and we've yeah. talked about that in a bit of detail but effectively now one of the other levers is to, for players to be able to put into their employment contract effectively that any future transfer fee that the, the current incumbent actually uh, realises a certain percentage has to be paid to the player. Yeah. Now that can also be very useful for the club as well. To be fair, which is the club may say, "Well, we'll give you that clause, but you're going to have to accept 15% less of your wage demands than you otherwise would have otherwise done." So again, it's just another one of those types of levers which can come in really useful for those negotiations. Has that, has that only ever not happened before because the transfer fees haven't been? kind of significant enough for that to be attractive to players or is that is that something that should have been happening five years ago? It's absolutely clarification that FIFA made only this summer to their own regulations which have then meant that particular agencies and agents have not cottoned on but have read the regulations spoke to lawyers like me in a bit of detail and said you know how can we find extra value for the players so that's a, a, quite an interesting trend that will develop and I gave a talk on, uh, to FIFA actually about that last week actually because there's quite a lot of risk for the player potentially um, in all of that mm-hmm. because if then an agent says well I'm going to take 10% of your economic transfer fee that's actually not allowed under the regulation so there's, there's all these types of compliance issues as yeah. well that's I guess the big question that the players and agents should be asking therefore is is spending sustainable and we, we get asked that quite a lot like what how do you even begin to value the players you know if, if you're a player who, who has got his own economic rights under his control can he forecast where he's going to end up is the actual spending that's going on sustainable and it's quite interesting we actually think it is on the whole um, because it's driven by broadcast rights value growth and that has been particularly in the big five leagues going up substantially over the last last decade um, Deloitte did some good figures on looking at net spend as a proportion of club revenues and that's actually been it was actually down in the Premier League mm. over the summer it was about 12% it was its lowest since, since 2012 mm. um, so even though you're seeing record gross figures or record total figures mm. 
uh, actually the spending is relatively sustainable. So I guess the, the change in those regulations is probably quite good news for, for players. Well, the other interesting thing I found about um, that is it, as you know better than I, and certainly something that we talk a lot about is, you know, transfer spending is only one part of the, the wider analysis or assessment debate which is a lot of spending probably more so goes on player wages really so what we're actually seeing is perhaps you know different cycles of different clubs doing different things so again with Spurs over the last period before this summer window they weren't spending weren't spending anything at least on transfer fees but it had probably seven or eight substantive contract renegotiations with their top players to sign into long term deals in the same way in the opposite way almost Liverpool sign Van Dijk Allison et al get, um, lose Coutinho over a slightly longer period their agents fees go up because of the transfer fee that is paid and their wage bill goes up significantly but that actually means that because they've got a big squad now they don't necessarily need to spend huge amounts in the summer so again I mean I know that's a lot of the focus that you have those interesting trends I think of you know transfer spend is in a way I find sometimes a bit of an artificial construct yeah. because we're, what we're doing is we're taking a specific moment in time and using that as the basis for progress yeah. rather than actually the holistic view which is you know what is a club spending how are they spending it what are they spending on wages and that disparity again we talk about between um, you know base salary and then variable accordingly yeah. let's get on to wages actually because one of the ways that players can influence that is to join a club on a free mm. um, and so I mean I've got a theory and it's difficult to pick up in, in the evidence because there are so many free transfers out there to what extent players are doing this but I've got a theory that players are running down their contracts more and more because they've got the power mm. now you know they, they it's so easy to identify a player now everyone's got access to technology and the data to identify the talent so players are always in the spotlight. And if you're good enough, like an Aaron Ramsey, you can go, well, I'll just set out my contract and I'll, I'll get a big wage at mm. my new club. Is that, is that something you see happening as well? There's loads of really interesting things in that space, I think. You know, it all stems back to, without getting all too legalistic on it, for um, the football chat, is the Bosman ruling yeah. and the idea that players can move for a free transfer at the end of their contract. So after that, then effectively it becomes um, what do players want to do in terms of I guess stability in terms of risk and reward um, and everything that stems from there there's been loads of examples of players moving on freeze but actually it's more than that as well which is you know players running down their contracts for the last 18 and 12 months puts them in a strong position um, because they are still valuable assets um, for clubs to be able to trade so um, there's been numerous examples where players will receive quite big bumper um, uh, increases in wages because the club knows that if they lose them for a free there's a problem and they retain their value for future mm-hmm. sell-on the, the interesting element within all of that again um, something that we talk about as well is where those wages um, as a proportion of the rest of the squad sit um, within different categories of squad or uh, player um, um, numbers so you know Emery Chan moving from Liverpool to Juve for example now can't get into the, the Champ- Juve Champions League squad he's on a huge amount of money presumably if it's not his weekly wage it is his loyalty bonuses and signing on fees and other types of bonuses included so the one thing I'm always very interested in is the dynamic um, of how you know a Bosman coming into a new club yeah. 
actually then impacts on the rest of the squad. Um, but as importantly, um, whether clubs strategically, like Juve again, are taking on um, high wage earners because they can do because of the, the, the lack of transfer fee. Mm. And it looks like there are some clubs that are doing that more proactively than others and others that then are taking advantage of, um, of, of that type of player behaviour. But yeah. again, very briefly without monopolising the conversation is... For the player, the significant risk is, you know, if you are if you're deciding not to sign a new contract, you've got to mitigate against the risk. You know, a major um, Achilles ACL injury or whatever could put you out maybe for six months to nine months to a year. Do you need to be taking out injury insurance at that time when your contract is running down to protect you against the possibility of not getting a new contract, mm-hmm. for example? Um, and you know, are you in form? Are you playing well? Might you even be out of the team because your club knows you're running down the contract and doesn't want play you accordingly so it's, it's those type of yeah well, one of the clubs we work with on um, on the effect that wages have on the rest of the squad they call it the slipstream mm. which I think is a really nice phrase yeah. for it is that at the moment one player moves ahead then there is a slipstream effect of other players who want to who increase their salary and and the big challenge I think that clubs have is exit markets mm. um, you know again we talk about the, the inequality that exists in the game if the wages are really high at the top level of the game very hard to then get a move out of the club because you've only got a really small section of buyers. And I think clubs are beginning to get smarter at a managing the wage bill in the first place, but also beginning to understand exit markets on players because if you have got a guy who's on two hundred fifty grand a week at a top club but he's not playing, you've got to find a way out for him. Yeah. And there aren't that many, and that's why you're getting a few more of these these loan to buy options. We see Coutinho, for example, we're seeing Celso, uh, players like that who clubs potentially want to get rid of or um, or looking to, to sell on and then they, they get those options in their contracts and I think the interesting bit that I find there as well is that you know I, I'm lucky enough to work on a lot of transfers in a variety of different negotiation and bargaining positions and sometimes when you know a club wants to sell the player but the player isn't keen on going for mm. example that the player may have two or three loyalty bonuses left in his contract that could be worth several million euros and the same with signing on fees and the same with agents commission for example and so an agent and the player are rightly saying to the club who may have given them a bump of salary because maybe they come on a free transfer or because they're running down their contract and could afford that negotiation position is well I'm I'm not going to go anywhere Um, I don't want to I'm happy here maybe my children and my wife are settled and everything else might be but also I'm entitled to this money that you're going to pay me over the next three or four years so unless you're going to come to a commercial solution for me to pay out 30 or 40 or 50 or even more percent of the remaining deal why should I be going anywhere yeah the club has that sporting sanctionability effectively which is well you're not going to play you're not going to get your performance bonuses your value is going to deteriorate massively you're not going to play international football etc so again it's that multifaceted approach yeah. to, to team and club dynamics and that's where I guess performance bonuses are particularly relevant right because a club needs to be able to scale its pay on a player up and down based on how much he's actually contributing to the team yeah I mean, you, we we both probably see that quite a lot in your in your work, especially club side as well. But you know, there's there's no doubt that the at least the trend that I see in the UK is away from individual 
bonus related payments so you know are, are there some clubs still paying for goals and assists mm. yes but I think that generally is in the decline um, and what are we more seeing again you might see it more as well and you've probably given advice on these type yeah. of incentives um, which is effectively how do you best incentivize a squad rather than a, a squad of individuals mm. and that tends to be around appearing substantive appearances around drawing and winning games and then particular progress in probably the more premium competitions as well yeah, exactly. and all of those go into the, the bonus mix depending on the value that the club attaches to those wins and into the, how deep you're going into particular premium competitions yeah. I know of a couple of clubs that will even incentivise either team or coach on expected goals now as well mm. so we know that you know football's a low scoring sport and you can play well and not, and not necessarily win the game but playing well, i.e. creating lots of chances and not conceding many, mm. is reflected in, in a stat called expected goals, where if teams do that in the long run, they'll tend to do better. So a club's rewarding the process rather than the outcome. And I think as much as possible in a bonus, if you can do that, reward the process. So for a player, that might be rewarding him on his body fat percentage rather than just an outcome like a win for example so yeah. getting them to do the right things as opposed to just focusing on the outcome of things is, is a particularly interesting trend and again it's almost your league table on that which is um, can be sometimes quite different depending on particular outcomes on expected goals or expected goals conceded and that effectively allows if it's owners chairman investors otherwise to try and maybe work out the underlying performance of overachievement or underachievement based on the squad based on um lots of different variables that I've seen you doing some fantastic reports on which maybe give a slightly more objective less um, uh, subjective view of where a team is at a particular moment in time because of results good or bad yeah, yeah. we spoke a bit about uh, about player power um, and that was a big subject of discussion in the transfer window which closed early in England mm. was, remained open on the continent um, where do you think clubs sit on that now um, that decision to, to close the window early and still have players potentially well I'm I'm uh, probably banking on the window possibly closing a bit later this next <laughs> year <laughs> for, for, for holiday planning purposes now is the truth although I do have a few that I'm going to have to try and get around um, with Holly deciding what we do but um, yeah I think uh, Look, to, to me, when the initial decision was taken a few years ago now, it felt um, it felt a bit odd. Um, not necessarily from a principled Premier League perspective, which I can see, mm-hmm. um, which is effectively, you know, we need to ensure integrity of competition to a degree. I'm, I'm fine with, with that. And if that stays... Um, if the, if the rules change, Manchester City reports come out with a tweak of those proposals mm-hmm. to a degree. Ultimately, I think, you know... Um, Premier League clubs don't want to necessarily be reactive to particular things that are happening and you know there is something of fettering their ability to be able to do transactions later in the window Um, maybe because a transaction has happened on the continent as well and vice versa so it, it feels like there is more of a groundswell towards that change occurring and to me it would sound sensible within you know the, the, the parameters of a few possible tweaks to the system which alleviate some of the integrity issues but actually allow the clubs to keep um, to keep purchasing towards the end of the window and in, you know whenever there's an artificial deadline whatever you call the deadline an artificial deadline there is going to be a build up in those last couple of days but when things are still going on on the continent it makes it more difficult then yeah. to, to reactively work in, inside the Premier League. Yeah. Well one of the things we've seen in our research is that prices do go up as you go towards deadline day so they go up by about one or two percent per week which 
might not sound like much, but it adds up comparing the start of a window to an end of a window. Um, but you're right, wherever you draw that deadline, you're always going to have that that premium towards the end of the window. So you might as well try and alleviate all the other problems, which might be around player discontent or disruption within the squad and, and try and get some sort of alignment. I, I know the clubs were probably hoping that you know, in moving towards an earlier window, they might encourage Spain and Italy and Germany and so on to, to move to an earlier window. Uh, and I know there have been some kind of discussions of that on the continent, but uh, it doesn't seem to be like it'll be moving in that direction. No, so I think for both of us, we're going to have um, yeah. some fun times ahead for the end of August as usual. But, you know, ultimately, as, as <laughs> I put in my book and uh, a little bit, which is, you know, we've done some good deals on the beaches of um, southern France <laughs> if necessary. And I've got a feeling that might not be too much different for, uh, for the summer window ahead. Absolutely. On um, on image rights, so that was another topic of conversation mm. in the summer with Dybala mm. and, and kind of his failure to move to, to the Premier League. Um, talk us through a little bit of, of that because I think, again, the, the casual football fan might think, oh, it's just a case of agreeing on the wages and transfer fees and that's it, but clearly there's more to it. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that it, it may may or may not be that Dybala's moved to Spurs um, uh, fell apart because of image rights deals as you as well as I know in, in football there's, there can be lots and a myriad of reasons why things do or do, don't happen at particular times I for, for in my professional work haven't seen a deal a transfer deal break down because of an image rights deal is the truth um, and sometimes they're done um, at a variety of times leading up to transfer or even post transfer sometimes but it is relatively uncommon, as was reported in the Dybala deal, for a third party to own his image rights. Mm-hmm. And um, if that was part of the deal, that certainly makes it more complicated. But the, the, the general approach is usually when a club is entering into an image rights deal with um, a player, or a, pr- a prospective player, they'll want some proactive rights, which is um, appearances, use of image, particular um, club endorsement possibilities and uh, appearances with particular partners as well potentially and you know a use of social media in a variety of different ways as well but the the um, the negative impact so rather the the, the negative um, requirements also um, oblige um, a player not to potentially enter into endorsement deals with competitors of club partners and that can be where it can become a bit tricky mm. And that is where effectively the club find the value. So you don't have a diluted brand between um, conflict of a club um, club brand to a conflict of a player brand, excluding boot deals, which are usually the ones that fall outside of the, the image rights restrictions. So um, do things get complicated in those types of negotiations? Clearly. Absolutely. <laughs> Can there sometimes be... Um, uh, um, already established existing deals which players have moving into clubs which may cause a conflict absolutely too they can usually get resolved is the truth which makes the, the Dybala deal a bit more of an outlier generally so maybe it will come out one day what's actually happened or otherwise but it does seem a bit of a, an outlier at present yeah. you're right that there are all kinds of hurdles that exist on, on a deal and you know just coming up with a valuation in the first place can be really, really tricky for clubs. That's, that's some of the work that we do with teams is just trying to identify you know, how valuable is this player, both in terms of his market value, but also intrinsically what he is to his team. But then there's so many steps that come after that. So you kind of, as a club, you agree, okay, this is the offer we want to go in with, this is what we think he's worth to the team. But then there's the agent who you need to speak to and understand if the player's actually willing to move and, and then all the knock-on effects. And then finally, I can imagine it's incredibly frustrating for clubs when they get to that final stage where they're with the player. 
and then things might fall down. Not for something trivial, but for something that seems like, oh, we did all this kind of hard work and it just didn't quite, didn't quite come off. The beauties of the transfer window yeah, in a short period of time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, www.danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably like my book, Dundee, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Yes, a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All the links are in the podcast show notes. Thanks for listening and please join me again.